Cinephile. Nicholas Cage. Very sincere group of film enthusiasts who are proudly cinephiles. Oh my goodness! Warren Beatty apparently read the wrong name. This is incredible. Moonlight won Best Picture. Cinephile. Ethan Hawke. It's kind of like I'm a professional actor and I direct for love. There's so much in this world that's dividing us, and music is one of those great tools that brings us together. All right. There's baseball and World War II. It's kind of a dream. Cinephile, the Adnan Verk Movie Podcast. All right, yes. Why wasn't I still recording? That would have been gold. Could have run that as the open. open. Great to have you back here with us on Cinephile, 4th of July weekend edition. It's very confusing. I saw some tweets there from producer Dan Stanzik. Are people celebrating the 4th of July? Did they already celebrate it? Are they celebrating it now? I have no idea. But here's something to celebrate, and that is the film 8th Grade. Burnham's accomplished debut offers plenty for viewers of all ages, along with a filmmaking vision that is well beyond many of his comedy peers. That's from Nick Allen of RogerEbert.com. I think you're really going to enjoy Bo Burnham. He's our special guest Today on Cinephile and his film, Eighth Grade, which I'll also be reviewing. Uh, interesting guy, a funny guy. I think he'll enjoy the interview and where he goes with it. It's one of the films we'll be reviewing, along with Mr. Rogers' documentary, Won't You Be My Neighbor. We start, though, unfortunately, on a negative note. By the way, speaking of negativity, Jake Del Moro is going to come in here and blast Gotti. This is an incredible favor he did for Cinephile that he sat through that movie. He actually paid to watch Gotti. So he's going to offer a guest review of what is being called the worst movie since Gili. Can't wait. Eighth grade, by the way, other end of the spectrum, currently 100% on Rotten Tomatoes. I'll give you the review in just a second. However, I just saw my brother this weekend. He's an enormous Dan Stanzik fan, but he wanted to pass along. He thinks Up in the Air is absolute garbage. He goes, that movie is so overrated. He goes, I cannot believe. Stands uh, given every man review, and he goes, Anna Kendrick, he goes, he kept talking about Anna Kendrick, he goes, I guess I'd have to see it again to find out what he was so fascinated by, but he's out on up in the air. Here's what I'd tell him. He loves superhero movies. Clooney, my superhero. <laughs> Anna Kendrick, another superhero. I said, I already know Dan's response. He's going to say, oh, well, if Spider-Man was the lead role, I'm sure your brother would have liked it. Oh, what do we need? Tobey Maguire in the movie for you to like it? <laughs> I also solicited feedback on Passport. I said, what do you think of Passport's in defense? Do you listen to the entire podcast? He goes, he goes, oh, it's good. He goes, the one I really liked was, uh, he goes, Con Air. He goes, Con Air is awesome. That was a great one. He goes, one of the other ones was lousy. I mean, it's just a bad movie, whatever he was reviewing. I don't know what the other one was, but I'm like, well. Probably well. Grandma's Boy. <laughs> <laughs> that, that seems to be the consensus. You either love, you either love it or hate it. Probably Grandma's Boy. Uh, probably was. <clears throat> Let's kick it off with eighth grade, which as I mentioned is Bo Burnham's new film. Uh, it reminded me in many ways of a film called Welcome to the Dollhouse. That was when Todd Solons made that film. He's a really interesting filmmaker. Makes movies that are bizarre and idiosyncratic and eccentric and awfully tough. Uh, but they're they're entertaining in their own right. He made a movie that, like I mentioned, Welcome to the Dollhouse, which is about adolescence. And a great film called Happiness. It's one of my favorite Philip Seymour Hoffman roles. Um, so in some ways, I don't know if Bo Burnham was aping Solons, but clearly 8th grade has that tone of of being squeamish. And it starts out with this. For anybody who has a daughter or anybody who's a female who's gone through middle school, they can tell you that that's the area of life that is just agonizing. And that you may think high school is the worst and maybe college doesn't work out for some, but when you're 13 years old, that's that tidal wave of adolescence, which is so uncomfortable. You're dealing with puberty and boys and rancor at home, and Bo Burnham puts it all together here. And I, I guess it's a comedy. Maybe it's a dramedy is the better way of putting it because – there's some good laughs, but it's not exactly ha-ha funny, but there's definitely some moments of observational humor. And then there's some cringeworthy moments as well. Um, ultimately, it's a story about 
a daughter played by Elsie Fisher, who's perfectly cast. I mean, this is tough with, with child actors to find somebody who can be precocious and interesting and fun. And is it is she like this in real life? Is she just an actress? You know, how do you cast these people? And Bo will tell us about that in a little bit. But I thought she was terrific in the movie. And overall, the casting is really good and really strong. And it's her relationship with her dad. And just as she's trying to go through these murky waters of adolescence, uh, he's really open in terms of sexuality, which I was found a little bit jarring. I was wondering how many cool parents are actually going to watch this movie uh, with their teenage daughters and how many are going to go, no, no, you cannot watch that movie. It's way too close to the truth. Um, but I thought it was was it was honest and it was insightful. And it was one of the movies that got a ton of buzz at Sundance. It's one of the movies that Ben Lines and I didn't get a chance to see. But I'm glad that I've now seen it. So check out 8th Grade. It's going to be coming out July 13th. I'm sure it'll be in limited release. But as I mentioned, by the 100% Rotten Tomatoes, critical darling. So hopefully it'll open up in more markets. But definitely check out 8th Grade uh, and you'll get more from Bo Burnham's interview in just a second. Maple Leafs, I will give it uh, three and a half Maple Leafs. Yeah. You seemed hesitant. Yeah, no, no. I was, I was thinking about because I mean, what it was was rewatchability. I thought if you just popped in eighth grade, but I watched it again now, and I'm like, yeah, you know what? I would because there's enough moments that was pure and honest. And three and a half Maple Leafs for eighth grade. Won't You Be My Neighbor, which was another movie that got a ton of buzz at Sundance. Couldn't wait to see it. It's all about Mr. Rogers. And I'll tell you right out of the gate, it's a really good documentary, and it's an ode to decency, and it's honest, and it's unsparing. But I'm only giving it three Maple Leafs. And right away after I tweeted my review, people are saying, what? Jill Haley's all over me. What? Only three Maple Leafs? What's wrong with you? And, and here's so – it's, it's odd when you give a review and they and already I'm starting out negatively. But it's got 99% Rotten Tomatoes. But but here's my issue with it. It's honest and it's, it's a tribute to, as I said, human decency. And it's a, a good biography about a guy who lived life the right way, who was principled and authentic and genuine. I mean, Fred Rogers, I mean, you think about Mr. Rogers' neighborhood, and that guy is not exactly lighting the world on fire, but he's honest and principled, and those characteristics are not exactly of what great drama is made. And I just filled in for the Levitard show, and I was talking about the movie, and Dominique Foxworth said to me, well, what's so good about it? And I saw it's just a really sweet story about this children's host. He's just a genuinely nice guy, and it makes you realize there's so much rancor in the world and politically and all those sorts of things, and it's just nice to have a guy who really was who he was. And he said, well, what's the hook to the movie? And I said, well, he wasn't like a drug addict. He wasn't an alcoholic. He wasn't a womanizer. He's like, and? And I'm like, he was just a, just a really nice guy. Like, <laughs> and it's to say that great drama is made of those attributes. Like, it helps when you have that stuff. And I'm not saying I wish that Mr. Rogers had been like that. But clearly, if he had any sort of skeletons, it was a sanitized look at him. Because clearly, they had the family's full cooperation. Um, his wife is interviewed. His son is interviewed. Like, I would have liked to have seen more from the son. The best story the son tells is he goes at the dinner table. Whenever he was upset, my dad would start putting on these voices. And I'm like, okay, that's a little odd. And he goes, but that's when he was back. All right, guys, don't talk like that. And I said, that to me is interesting. This guy who was always kind and genuine that he couldn't actually be angry against his children. He almost had to adopt another persona to be angry. What's that like to have a dad who speaks in a different voice when he's talking to you? And he's this famous father figure to, you know, hundreds of millions of children. That would have been interesting to me, but maybe that's territory they didn't want to go into, and it was a little bit too murky. Um, so it's not like there's there's much lacking necessarily. I mean, you would have to invent other subplots, but it, it, I think it's joyful. I love the way the movie ends. There's a beautiful ending to it. It's really artfully crafted and very poignant. I love the last five minutes of the film. The only sort of backlash he faced was later in his career, uh, people said that he was the reason kids were so entitled. Because Mr. Rogers was telling children all the time, you're special, you're special. And and critics of Mr. Rogers said, well, these kids have done nothing. You're, ju you're just making them spoiled babies. 
and that it's your fault. And seeing some of those headlines, you go, are you, this is the world we live in now? You're criticizing Mr. Rogers? Like, what is that about? Um, but it works along at a, at a brisk enough pace. I mean, it's about 95 minutes. But at heart, he was a banal person. So this isn't exactly a penetrating documentary. It's insightful, and it's warm, and it's inviting. But I did not think it was captivating, and that's why I'm giving it three Maple Leafs. A different perspective from Rick Passmore in defense of why it should be a four Maple Leaf movie. Uh, <laughs> well, the reason why it should be a four Maple Leaf movie is because the things you're trying to find that you're taking issue with, the drama, the like, where's the grit, where's the grime to Mr. Rogers, right. that's not what this film is about. This film is actually a film that we kind of need as people right now with all the stuff going on in the news cycles and how divided we're becoming. Mr. Rogers was about acceptance, about love. Even when he disagreed, you look at like the stuff with Francois Clemens being uh, an open, uh, now currently a, a openly gay man. Back then, like he couldn't be that in the, in the seventies and, and eighties and especially on Mr. Rogers show. Like he had to like, keep that well undercover which that's more the uh, the side of mr rogers that's the dirty side him being you know, a little more conservative and, and appeasing to that sensibility lifelong republican devout christian however in that sense is he was never a mean person he was he never spoke on his his faith as the religious tone he spoke on it as being an empathetic person being accepting being caring and that's what this shows. Like, even through all of his hardships growing up, being ill all the time, not having very many friends, how can I teach children how to be better people? And that's what this documentary is about. Didn't realize he was such an auteur either. Like, it wasn't like he was just the host. He's writing it. He's directing it. He's conceptualizing it. Even ideas. Like, how do you make up the show for that week? He took on the issue of civil rights. One of the best parts of the movie is that he's, he has his feet, like, in a waiting pool. And then an African-American guy comes by. He's like, oh, do you mind if I take my shoes off? He's like, yeah. He sits at the pool. He's like, oh, doesn't that feel great? And at the time, you know, you did not have swimming pools that was available to everybody of all races. And that was a really smart way that he was dealing with race relations and getting his agenda across and doing it in a really subtle manner. And that to that same point, he did that at the same time that they, that people in the South were throwing bleach and, and cleaning chemicals into pools. And they juxtaposed that footage of that happening with uh, postman or officer Clemens coming in and, and they're sharing the pool and, and and rinsing their feet and cooling their feet with each other. The same thing with the uh, the first week was the Bobby Kennedy assassination and he and they tackled that like he, he had um, one of the puppets in in the imagination land uh, ask about what assassination was. Right. And, and so you have to explain because you, you can't skirt these issues with children. They're going to ask these questions. So what he did was. He brought it up to the forefront and said, how do you deal with this with children? And how, and how do you explain this to them without being, one, completely blunt and, and destroying their illusion of childhood and hope and happiness and without just completely sidebarring the issues? Like, let's not talk about that later. Go play with your dolls. A wonderful man, but a little banal. All right. I think it's Johnny Cash. He walked with God, but he partied with Satan. Right. That's what but I'm I looking think, for. But I think <laughs> you kind of need that. I think you kind of need that. That's that type of polarity in the world. You can't, yeah, yeah. you know, if, if you're going to be good, like walk that line. Like sometimes you're good and sometimes you got walk the line. Yeah, there, there you go. <laughs> sometimes you're a little too good. But at the same time, you need that. You need that honesty in, in yourself and you need to be that type of person to really portray that. And sometimes you can get away with having a couple demons and skeletons in your closet, but still being a good person overall. Adam Graham of the Detroit News said, won't you be my neighbor, doesn't deify Rogers, but it makes a strong argument that as a neighbor, he was one of a kind. Leave the final word there. One more film before we get to Bo Burnham, the interview this week on Cinephile, and that's Ideal Home. It's a docu, excuse me, 
a comedy starring Paul Rudd and Steve Coogan. Steve Coogan, of course, does the great Michael Caine impression. And Paul Rudd recently had the film The Catcher Was a Spy, which was a disappointment. Thanks to Ben Lewin, though, for coming on the podcast. Appreciate his time. Uh, they play a gay couple looking after a child. So immediately I said, wait, what is this, Three Men and a Baby? We got an update here? Who's playing the Steve Gutenberg? Who's Tom Selleck? Who's Ted Danson? But no, Coogan is a guy who earlier in his life, when he wasn't sure if he was gay or not, had a dalliance with a woman, father of the child, was not involved in the father's life. That kid uh, ends up being a felon, ends up being arrested by the police, and the child then gets taken care of in his grandfather's custody. Bit of a lead to picture Steve Coogan as a grandfather, but he looks good for his age. You never know, maybe, he had, maybe he had the child young. So now he and Paul Rudd... This gay couple who have no interest in children have to look after this child. So you have the elements here to say, all right, here we go. So they're not sure. And thankfully, he's not like a baby because I'm like, this is going to be really obvious. Okay, how are we going to feed him with the nipples? And, oh, he's crying all night. How do you burp him? Like, here we go. I've already seen this story before. Thankfully, he's at least 10 and 11 years old. But, okay, we get some jokes here. Um, but it's a little raunchier than I would have expected. Uh, there's particularly one scene of uh, Rudd and Coogan involved in the throes of lovemaking and the child's looking for something. I thought it was pretty... Uh, bold and audacious and very funny. There's about a half dozen really strong laughs, particularly from Coogan. He's really flamboyant in the role and funny. Rudd's playing more of the straight character, <clears throat> no pun intended. But uh, Coogan is actually really funny, and he definitely has moments with it. He's actually playing a guy who's a television personality, and he does these ideal homes. So um, I think the character lends itself to a certain amount of flamboyance, and he's clearly having a lot of fun in the role. Uh, but it's a good movie. It's a funny comedy. There's not a lot of good comedies out these days. So it's in theaters, limited release, also available uh, on demand. So video on demand, check it out. Ideal Home. I'm giving it three Maple Leafs because it's a good comedy. And it runs a scant 85 minutes. So uh, three movies this time we're reviewing, all 90 minutes and under. So this is uh, really an emblem of brevity this time here on Cinephile. Eighth grade, three and a half Maple Leafs. Won't you be my neighbor, three Maple Leafs. And Ideal Home, three Maple Leafs. Coming up lately, there will be no Maple Leafs. I'm guessing for Gotti, courtesy of Jake Del Moro, friend of Cinephile. But now it's time for Bo Burnham. A real pleasure to welcome in Bo Burnham. You heard my review of 8th Grade, which is absolutely terrific. I was at the Sundance Film Festival this year, did not get a chance to see 8th Grade, but I heard all the buzz about it, Bo, so I'm thrilled to see the movie. Before we get into it, though, I mentioned to one of my producers, Rick Passport, we're going to have you on Cinephile, this podcast, and he said, oh, you love Shandling. I said, yeah, of course, Shandling's my guy. I've, I've been raving about the Zen Diaries of Gary Shandling, Judd Apatow's documentary, Larry Sanders' show, my favorite comedic show. And he shows me the clip of you, which I somehow had missed, on the green room with Paul Provenza, and you were hysterical. It's you and Gary Shandling and Judd Apatow, and it's amazing. First, tell me about that whole story, because I apologize. I did not know you were on that show and had that experience with those guys. Yeah, no, I was 19 at the time. And yeah, it was like a one or two season show on Showtime where they just got a bunch of comedians together to talk. And it was like, yeah, it was me as a 19-year-old and Judd and Gary and Ray Romano and Mark Marin. So I was like the token, like, young person that hadn't done anything yet. Um, but it was great. I mean, it was a really good conversation. I got along with Gary really well. That was the first time I met him. And then, yeah, we we're able to spend some time together alone, like over the following years. Um, and Gary actually read the screenplay to this movie, like way before I even tried getting it made. Oh, um, wow. Because he was just, he was just such an open and caring and amazing, attentive person creatively. So I shared a lot of things with him, including the, the germ of this idea. Yeah. One of the best things about Judd's documentary is he shows Gary's ability to mentor and how that was so important to him. And, 
some of the names we knew, like Apatow and Sarah Silverman, but I didn't know what kind of relationship we had with Sasha Baron Cohen, uh, the likes of his season story, and now yourself. What were those conversations like with you and Gary? Because as Judd said, the documentary is fun to make because people, as you said, knew how kind and generous he was, but he could be prickly, he could be different, and oftentimes he was on the spiritual journey of Buddhism and trying to find out who he was and creation and, and all of that. So did you have those types of deep conversations with him? Yeah, I mean, it was much more like listening and open and an even dialogue than I would have or anyone would expect. Like, it's not, even if it is mentorship, it's like mentorship through seeing the other as an equal or seeing that you could learn something from the other. So, And that's something I brought forward for sure. But, yeah, it wasn't like, okay, sit down, young man, I'll teach you all about comedy. It wasn't that at all. It felt like, a you know, just like a friends, you know, just talking about whatever. And sometimes it was banal and sometimes it was deep, but it was always... You know, it's felt equal and like we were on the same footing. Right, a true partnership, so to speak. Is there any, as you said, you're not discovering life lessons, but maybe in the course of those conversations, is there anything that you did pass on about comedy or filmmaking or just about artist, artistic excellence that you uh, took to heart? Well, no, it's, I mean, it's really just the overall vibe of trying to break out of the sort of, in what Gary would say, like Western-minded mindset of, achievement and success and also trying just to attend to your inner life a little bit and relax and maybe meditate and breathe a little bit. Um, because if you're just like, you know, in the world of sort of Hollywood and entertainment and probably America at large, it can just become, you know, blinded careerism with no attention to our sense of well-being. So, you know, Gary planted that worry in me early, which I think is a good thing to have. Yeah, no question about it. Well, I obviously loved his work. I love the fact you had a relationship with him. Eighth grade, terrific movie. How in the world did you, Bo Burnham, tap into the life of an adolescent girl who's 13 years old? I, I'm watching the movie and going, seriously, how did you do this? Did you have a younger sister? Do you, do you, how, I, I don't know how you did it. How'd you do it? Seriously. Yeah, no, I don't know. No young sister it really is like, you know, I wanted to write about this generation specifically and the good thing about this generation, if, if you want to know anything about them, they're posting everything about themselves online all the time. So he like, <laughs> there is too much research to be had if you want to look into it. And that's really what it was. It was like, one, just going online and viewing kids as they were as I was writing it, but also when we were filming it, trying to give some of the authorship of the movie to the kids, you know, to let them feel free to express themselves. Not Not improvise necessarily, but just to defer to them always, you know, there's sometimes an impulse in, in movies about younger people to have control or try to project your younger self onto them. And my impulse was just to let the kids speak and they're the experts, you know, no one knows what it's like to be a 13 year old in 2018 other than them. So, you know, try to let them do as much of the storytelling as possible. Yeah. I don't know anything about 13 year old girls either, but one aspect you completely nailed is the fact they're always on the phone. I mean, I, I'm laughing watching the way her dad's trying to connect to them. This sweet conversation. She's got right, the headphones right, on. Yeah. She's on the phone. It's constantly Instagramming and liking. And probably the funniest exchange to me of the entire movie is when she, you know, becomes friends with some people in high school and they start asking her how old she was when Snapchat came out. And I'm thinking that's, that's what it is now. Like when I was growing up, it's, you know, we had VHS machines, you know, CDs and stuff. And now to go, when did Snapchat come? Oh, grade five. Oh my God, you're so old. Like, that was a hilarious exchange. Well, yeah, that's the thing is that like the, the, the sort of generational markers that would only come around like every 15 years, you know what I mean? Like with something like VHS and then a DVD. Now those changes are happening every six months. Uh, big sort of giant social changes in the way kids interact that usually would only change once a generation 
are now changing every few years. So it so it almost feels like every new year is a generation. You know, I feel closer to people ten years older than me than I do people three years younger than me. You know, so <laughs> I definitely think that's something happening for some reason. I don't I, know why. No, but you're absolutely right. That is something that happens like that. You don't can't really explain it properly, but it does definitely feel that way. We're talking with Bo Burnham. His new film is called Eighth Grade. It's opening in theaters July 13th. I encourage you all to check it out. In terms of the casting, I mean, a movie like this, as you said, when you're trying to cast Kayla, how did you make that decision to find the right actress and how uh, arduous was the process? Yeah, I mean, we looked at a lot of kids, like basically every actor that age. You know, the impulse was really wanting to make it. The character had to feel like a, because she's quiet in school and she doesn't have a lot of friends and she's, you know, quote unquote shy. But we needed it to feel like a shy kid pretending to be confident, not a confident kid pretending to be shy, because uh, I just think that's what that's what it actually means to be shy at that age. It doesn't mean that you're trying not to talk. It means you're actually trying to speak and express yourself in every moment and just can't bring yourself to. So part of it was just wanting to not have it feel like, you know, that the sort of kid actor vibe that can happen in that space, which is sort of wide-eyed and simplified and overly articulate. Um, we wanted kids that felt real, that, that stuttered and, and spoke in the way actual kids spoke, but also within the structure of the script. So that was really just, you know, meeting a lot of kids and, yeah, digging through and, until we found Elsie, who, who plays Kayla. And sort of, there was no second or third choice. It was sort of, once we found her, we realized it was either her or, or nothing, or we should pack up and not make the movie. Elsie <laughs> yeah, Fisher is fantastic. I echo those sentiments uh, with your film, Eighth Grade. I mean, middle school might be the worst, right? I, I was thinking back in my own life, um, college was phenomenal. Uh, high school is pretty good. I think high school often gets a rap to being the worst, but I think middle school is very tricky. And I said it to my wife, she goes, oh my God, she goes, for a girl, eighth grade is the worst because you're dealing with puberty and adolescence and making friends and you're making that transition to high school. So you you hit upon the sweet spot of definite awkwardness for, for eighth graders. And oh I'm yeah, sure. well, I appreciate it. Yeah, that, that was my impulse too, was feeling like so many of these stories were relegated to high school when I felt like, yeah, high school's not that, like the real battleground feels like seventh and eighth grade, when you really are almost a young adult, but really also still a child. Um, it feels like the, the actual in-between transitional phase. And when I sort of meet high schoolers now, they all sort of seem blasé and over it, or they have like a, you know, thousand-yard stare, which is, you know, looks like PTSD from the war of middle school. It's <laughs> good. an excellent way of phrasing it. Um sexuality in your film, I'm sure this was tricky to deal with, because again, you're at that age now, these kids know about the birds and the bees, and now uh, you're starting to, to deal with subject matter, which to parents, they would be astonished these kids are talking about, but you go to any playground and go ask them, 12 and 13 year olds, what they're talking about, and the one kid that she's interested in, you know, the verbiage she's using in the movie, I said, okay, that's accurate, but did you have any sort of impulse to not show that, or, or any sort of hesitation with those types of subjects? No, I was really just wanting to portray it honestly, you know, not necessarily go for laughs or anything, just try to portray it honestly. And sometimes when you portray it honestly, it just ends up being funny. But truthfully, you know, this movie will be rated R because of what's in it. And it is still, I think, if anything, a tamer version of what actual middle school is. It's the irony of of portraying a 13-year-old's life, that when you portray a 13-year-old's life honestly, they're not allowed to 
you know, they can't legally buy a ticket to see it on, by themselves, you know, which is, like, very funny. Right, I was um, thinking about that. As, as the, if we're teaching kids these words or anything. No, they, <laughs> no, you're you know right. I mean? no, you're right. But I was thinking, if I was a really cool parent, like, I would take my daughter to see eighth grade, right? Because then you'd be like, hey, I'm, I'm cool enough to appreciate this is what's happening out there, and we can have a real conversation about it. But you're right, more often than not, parents are going to hear about this. Go, no, 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 you can't see this eighth grade movie. It's, it's too it's too. Yeah, intense. no, it, it, Bringing your kid is might be, will be fun and a little awkward. It will be no more awkward than your actual day to day life with your kid. So you're used to it. Josh Hamilton's terrific playing the dad in the movie. What I liked about it is uh, Lady Bird's a terrific film, and it, it often focuses on the the mother daughter relationship. Although Tracy Letts is very good as the dad, but obviously yeah, yeah. you know Laurie Metcalf and Saoirse Ronan. That's the heart of the movie. What I liked about this father daughter story, and the mother is not vilified. She is just mentioned in passing that when mom left, and you don't get that. Uh, dialogue to late in the film and, and for me the best scene of the movie that fireplace scene is so beautiful and so moving oh appreciate it thank you um was that a conscious attempt to say listen let's not uh put people in boxes and that okay why did mom leave or what happened and she's not here and let's just focus on on dad and daughter which maybe is a relationship we don't see enough in movies yeah well part of it was this is only five days in her life and wanting to be honest to the amount of information that does come up in a five days of a kid's life that your life isn't restated out loud every five days, but sometimes there's an impulse in a movie to give all of the information possible. But at some, you know, to some degree we afford Kayla a little bit of privacy, you know, that we get to know as much as we can in the five days that we're with her. But also there's a life outside of her that we're not totally aware of. So, so that was part of that. Um, to just sort of realistically portray the circumstances and information you would get in following a kid around for five days, which is after five days, you're going to feel very, very close to that person and you're going to know everything she did then, but you're not going to know everything about her and her life. There's still something that only her and her father know the truth of. Yeah, it would be that unnecessary exposition of, you know, remember when mom left and she said this and you said that? Like, well, like you said, they would already know that, so they don't need to go further than that. That particular scene, I thought it was, like I said, it was so well-written and so well-crafted. How much of that was on the page? Where, what was the inspiration for that? Was it ad-lib by the actress? Tell me all about it. Yeah, a lot of it, most of it was on the page for sure. Part, part of it was really just trying to, you know, because Dad gives a pretty long speech and it's trying to counteract that speech feeling like some sort of big oratory thing you know it's not really about what dad says as much as it is about the effort behind it or even what he's trying to say and i think sort of what kayla recognizes is how much he cares for her rather than like pulling away from that a perfect phrase he said that'll carry her through the future so it really was taking the script and just running it, you know, 50, 100 times so it could feel messy and strange. And a lot of the movie, including that scene, is sort of about the spaces between the times people are saying things, what people are choosing not to say, uh, the struggle to articulate yourself, and the effort behind that struggle being the actual meaningful thing, not necessarily the words. You know, we're not trying to make a movie that's quotable. We're trying to make a movie that you remember the feelings of it. 
And that's a great way of putting it, Bo, because I thought of that. I, I said, when she hugs him, I said, there could have been more that he was saying and he was angling towards, but you didn't need more of that because you're already swept up in the emotion of what he's saying. And, that, and if right, there was yeah, more, right, yeah. right, if there was more, then it would become cloying and manipulative instead of genuinely heartfelt. Yeah, yeah, right. Uh, last one for you, just for the name like Bo Burnham. I mean, that's such a good name. I, I just want to know, <laughs> is, is that your real name? And B, can I get you to be like in a Western sometime? Because you could just play Bo Burnham and that would be the guy's name, right? The gunslinger from out West. A lot of people think I'm like a Southern quarterback. Bo is a very like Southern quarterback's name. Yeah, you know, I'm about to say, as um, an ESPN uh, commentator, I could definitely see you on College Football Saturday. Yeah, South exactly, Carolina game exactly. coach, Bo Burnham, yeah. Um, well, my real name is Robert, but it's not a stage name. Like, I've, I've been called Bo since I was a little kid. They wanted to name me Bo for real, but my mother said, well, if he becomes a doctor, he'll need, like, a real name as a backup. So they gave me a real name of Robert, and then always called me Bo, and then I really didn't become a doctor. I became the opposite <laughs> of a doctor. But I'm telling you, man, success sometimes, it's all in the name. Like, Bo Burnham, that that's catching people's attention. When you're a 19-year-old comedian, maybe Shailing said, I don't want to talk to this guy. Wait, Bo Burnham? That that sounds like a star. <laughs> yeah, right, right, exactly. <laughs> the movie is called Eighth Grade, in theaters July 13th. Thanks so much for the time, Bo. I, I think it's going to be a huge success for you, and all the credit in the world for what you've done with this film. It's terrific. Appreciate it. Thank you. So, well, thank you for the time. Thank you. Appreciate it. And now, a thought from Geico Motorcycle. It took 15 minutes to click on the banner ad entitled, You Won't Believe What These Child Stars Look Like Now. Be dissatisfied, and kind of sad, about how the child stars look. And now your computer is plagued by incessant pop-up ads. Oh, this can't be good. To add insult to injury, you could have used those 15 clickbait minutes to switch your motorcycle insurance to Geico. Geico. 15 minutes could save you 15% or more on motorcycle insurance. He's just an average man with an average life, and his reviews dictate that. Oh, right up my alley. First and foremost, playing to my strength. Dan Stanzik is. I thought it was a little, little much. Every man. <laughs> I really resent that open. <laughs> We're going to get a change. It's, yeah, so it's completely derogatory gone. the entire sure time. It is average life. His so, reviews dictate that. So listen, you've been really fawning over George Clooney, and he's a wonderful actor. We all love George. You clearly have shown a soft spot for Along Came Polly, which my brother also watched again because I understand now I wait, why I waited like 12 years to watch it. It was okay. I go, come on, Philip Seymour Hoffman, awesome. He goes, yeah, the Sharded thing was funny. I go, Zaria. All he said about Zaria is, that guy's jacked in that movie. I'm like, yeah, but it was funny. He's like, mm. So I'm curious where you're going with this. I All think right, you're going to go. My audience of one, your brother, <laughs> apparently I'm not winning him over. I'll but... ask him what he thought of I Love You, man. That was one of your best. Okay. We accept the reality of the world we are presented. It's as simple as that. The Truman Show. Yes! A hauntingly yes. prophetic 1998 film starring Jim Carrey, Ed Harris, and Laura Linney. Brian De Palma was originally attached to direct, but chose to do Mission Impossible instead. The script then went to Peter Weir, who had previously directed Witness and Dead Poets Society. Carrey plays the titular character Truman Burbank, who is the unknowing star of a popular television show. Every second of Truman's life has been broadcast to the world. His first step, his birthdays, his college graduation, his wedding, and all of the mundane days in between. Truman lives on Sea Haven Island, the largest television set ever created, so big that it can be seen from space. Roughly 5,000 cameras follow his every move. He is surrounded by actors. His wife, Meryl, played by Lenny, gets stage direction and lines fed in her ear by the show's power-hungry director, Kristoff, who is played by Harris. 
Because the camera is on Truman 24-7, there are no commercials, but that's where product placement comes in. Merrill says things like, quote, Why don't you let me fix you some of this Mococo drink? All natural cocoa beans from the upper slopes of Mount Nicaragua. No artificial sweeteners. I've tasted other cocos. This is the best. Things change for Truman one day when he sees a homeless man outside his office that he thinks is his father. Now, Truman's father, air quotes here, died years ago during a storm when they were fishing. His suspicions are raised because a businessman and woman whisk the homeless man away and onto a bus before he can talk to him. Truman then starts to notice things he hasn't seen before. He begins questioning things that he had never previously questioned. Normally, when his wife, a nurse, would say that she has to get to the hospital for a surgery, he would take her word for it. This time, he follows her. Despite a barrage of people trying to prevent him from witnessing the, again, air quotes here, surgery, Truman finally sees his wife hand a doctor a scalpel. Truman tries to get on a bus to Chicago, but it mysteriously breaks down. A travel agent tells him there are no flights to Fiji for over a month. He notices a repeating pattern of cars, bicyclists, and pedestrians circling his block, so much so that he, he can accurately predict when they will go by. He even tries to drive to New Orleans, but he can't make it out of Sea Haven due to traffic, a fire, and a nuclear accident. Eventually, Truman's resolve is put to the test, and he must decide if he wants to continue living the life of comfort he has grown accustomed to, or if he wants to explore the unknown, the real world. The Truman Show, and I'm giving it three stars, is dark, funny, and extremely prescient. There is a great 20th anniversary retrospective article in Vanity Fair in which the screenwriter, Andrew Nichols, says, quote, I think it's ironic that Truman was running from cameras and our society is running toward them. No need to secretly broadcast the life when we broadcast it ourselves. And that's the thing. We've become a Truman Show society, except everybody wants to be Truman. Whether it's Twitter, Instagram stories, Snapchat, Facebook, YouTube, or the hundreds of reality shows on television, we all want our voices to be heard and the fame that comes with it. Much in the way that Infinite Jest by David Foster Wallace, it's a really long book, is a cautionary tale, so too is The Truman Show. But it appears as if we have already blown past the warning signs. I mean, nearly two years ago, we elected a reality star as our president. Nickel also says, quote, when you know there is a camera, there is no reality. So in that respect, Truman Burbank is the only genuine reality star. Yeah, you had me at David Foster Wallace, who wrote a very famous article about Federer, Roger Federer's religious experience. I've known tennis, right, yeah. of course. I've not read Infinite Jest. It's really long. So it's not worth it. Well, I'll just take your uh, review It's like it. a technology is going to be the ruin of all of us okay. kind of thing. I'm just furious because I know when we had Oberman on, I mispronounced it prescient and you pronounced it correctly prescient, but that is, that's all I'm thinking about the entire review. But it is prescient, Truman Show, which also the film network was, reality TV, how it takes over, we all become the stars. Carrie's first real dramatic role, it was, it was audacious for him to take that leap and to show he had, he could stretch, even though there's elements of comedy. Giamatti, awesome. Ed Harris, terrific villain. I mean, that, that, that scene at the end, come on, say something! You're on television! <laughs> Very minor role for Giamatti, though. Like, I know, but was he to... nothing at the time? Yeah, at that time, 1998, just barely a blip. Like, it's a bit role. Right. Like, oh. I think he has a, a handful of lines. Right. But I was surprised and, and happy to see that he was in there, especially when you go back and see it. Laura Linney, Laura Linney, great. <laughs> she's so frightened when she realizes that Carrie's in it. She's kind of angry. She's like, I'm trembling. You're upsetting me. Like, she's so. Can't bored. work under these conditions. Yeah, she yeah she's just borderline hysterical. He's like, no, he knows. The joke is up. The jig is up. Uh, good morning. Good evening. Good night. Love the ending. Love the score, too. Great score. Like, one of those very kind of like funky music or futuristic a little bit. I should have looked. I think Ed Harris won an Oscar. No, no, no. no. 
not win. Maybe nominated. Passmore nominated. Play. Yeah, definitely didn't win. Nominated was, for best supporting. I don't know if he was nominated. I mean, Rick Carey was not nominated. And that was the big deal. It's like, oh come on, he should be nominated. He wasn't nominated for that. He wasn't nominated for Man on the Moon. Like Jim Carrey, I think is a great actor. He's never been nominated for an actor. Oscar, excuse me. Three Oscar nominations: Ed Harris, best supporting actor; it. Peter Weir, best director, best writing screenplay, written, written, written directly for the screen. Andrew Nichol. Yeah, Nichols, none of them won. Yeah, Nichols' script is terrific. I mean, it came out in 1998. I'm a little surprised you only give it three stars. You can like it, but you don't love it. Yeah, I'm, you know, a little more difficult than you. I don't just hand out three and a half and four stars like you do. Yeah, most of you be my neighbor. I give it three and I'm being castigated by Passport. We'll find out if it wins an Oscar. All right, The Truman Show. Good movie. Check it out. Now it's time for a movie that's not very good. Gotti. All right, so we've had some highs here at Eighth Grade, Bo Burnham's new film. We're talking about Won't You Be My Neighbor, the Truman Show revisitation. We want to end, though, really on a low note. We really want you to enjoy July 4th and bring out some fireworks and pick you up from the cinematic albatross that is Gotti. A part of me wanted to see this film because, you know, is it in the category of so bad it's good? Is this Gili? Is this Plan 9 from Outer Space? Is this one of those movies that will be enjoyable? But Jim Bowden, who works with us on baseball tonight, said, no, it's just bad. There's nothing about it. You're not going to enjoy the experience. I do not recommend seeing it. It's not so bad. It's good. But Jake Del Moro, who is one of the best guys here at ESPN, works on the Will Cain Show, works with us on baseball tonight. He's also jacked. We can get to that another time. Very proud of Jersey, Jersey Pride, Sopranos, et cetera. Jake just had a terrible bout of kidney stones. Yes. And so I said, what could be more painful than kidney stones but watching Gotti? You went and saw this film. You paid twelve dollars for this. You saw. Oh, I paid six dollars. That's where we. That's where we start. The, the price. The price made it all worth it. Um. So yeah, had a big bout of kidney stones. We'll get into that in a little bit. But said, what could be worse? Kidney stones are gaudy. So a couple Fridays ago, went to the theater. Ten o'clock on a Friday morning. So that shows you where I am in my life. And I saw Gotti. The ticket ticket guy looked at me and said, "All right, theater." Gave me a look. For Gotti is theater ten. All right, cool, man. Thanks. We haven't had anybody here, but yeah, this is terrific. Thrilling. I didn't know this was actually. So I walk in. There's a guy already sitting there. So I see where I'm going to be at in 25 years, <laughs> alone by myself. Friday morning movie, Gotti. Two couples then walk in. So all right, we're not we're not that alone. This is like a week after Gotti's open. Like, yeah, the, the, the negative press is out there. People are like, ah, oh, screw it, it's good. Yeah, after critics, what do they know? Might have made a million dollars. I saw the first week, so it can't be that bad, right? Like they can't. You know, Kevin Connolly from Entourage directed it. Right. Can't be awful. Travolta, think what you want about him. He he's made some great movies. Yeah, that's he's true. Made some, he's had some. First scene is one of those break the fourth wall scenes. Ah, oh. New York City, my effing city. I'm like, here we go. This is <laughs> now. I'm from. I am from New Jersey. I'm from right outside of New York City, so I do have, and I'm Italian, so I do know about the history of the mob and Gotti's such a big name. So I thought, oh, okay, Gotti movie. But then when I heard all this stuff, we knew it was going to be bad. Let's just start off right away. Like I said, fourth wall breaking. This is my effing city. No one messes with me. I'm okay. Here we go. Right. We start off. He's about to die. That's where the movie starts. <laughs> he's in jail speaking to Junior Gotti. You know, hey, don't take this plea deal, yada, yada. So already we're off the bat. Then we jump back to when they're babies. So then Gotti's in the jail talking to his kids when they're babies. So, okay, that's a little, you know, it doesn't have to be linear, but the first hour of the hour 45 was jumping back and forth and had no idea where we were it was where Gotti's in jail when he's maybe in his 30s to Gotti's dying right now to hey here's Gotti talking to sammy the bull here's all this thing so that was crazy um the accents were the worst accents i've ever heard in my entire life it was it was like half the people were from the area and half the people didn't care 
So they would just, yeah, I'm from New Jersey instead of, yeah, you know, I'm from New Jersey. You know, it's awful, terrible, uh, dialogue. Just, you would think they were actually reading it off a piece of paper. Like I'm reading off my notes now. <laughs> hey, John, how you doing? I'm good. Thanks. How you doing? Cool. Uh, like I, now I did give Travolta some credit. You said Travolta's the best part of the movie. I mean, that's, think of an analogy that you can say. That's not saying much. Um, he, there's a part in the movie where Gotti's, uh, young son gets hit by a car and passes away. Uh, looked like Travolta never cried before in his life. Didn't know, didn't, his face didn't know what to do. The muscles didn't know how to move. It was a lot of plastic surgery. You saw Tropic Thunder when, um, uh, Ben Stiller couldn't cry. Oh yeah, yeah. That's exactly what it was. It was just, come on, just do it. Just cry. Oh, just moving around. It, it, I don't, I don't know how Travolta did it. The best part of the movie to me, and we're going into July 4th weekend. So they have a July 4th scene where there's a celebration. Gotti gets out of jail. He pays for this big party. They use a Pitbull song. Pitbull song wasn't released 25 years <laughs> after this scene. I would assume maybe longer. Um, also Pitbull did the soundtrack. <laughs> so when I think John Gotti, Italian mobster, I think Pitbull. Mr. 305, Mr. Worldwide. They even another Pitbull song. They used David Koresh as a line. David Koresh hadn't happened yet. So nobody in this part, they couldn't find a stock. Listen, I understand their budgets and whatnot. $10 million budget. They couldn't find a stock song, party song from the eight, sound eighties like they had to use Pitbull. So we're already off there. They jump back from stock video back and forth. So, Hey, here's New York City in the seventies. Here's New York City now. And it's completely different. Just. Pick, pick, pick one. You're either going to use stock footage or you're going to use live shots. Right. They went back and forth on both. And finally, finally, thankfully, the last 15 minutes were all about Junior Gotti. I don't care about Junior Gotti. I couldn't care less about him or his family. I wanted to see the movie about John Gotti. It was, it was an improbably the worst. It was the worst movie I've ever seen in my entire life. No, I'm going to say it. It was. It can't be the worst. I can't think of another movie. That I've seen now. Wild Wild West was not good. Yeah, well, that movie sucks. That's, That's, that movie might be worse than Connie. That's yeah, but is it? <laughs> because, because at least in Wild Wild West, I was entertained. Here I was just, there was one part where they finally introduced us to Sammy the Bull. If people don't know, Sammy the Bull was a member of Gotti's mafia family who snitched on him, and he's one of the biggest rats in mafia history. The first time we see him, oh, I don't trust that Sammy the Bull. I think... Oh, gee, I wonder where we're going here, guys. I wonder, wonder what's going to happen with Sammy the Bull. Telegraphing it yeah, right away. Just, it was, it was painful. And I kind of want to see it again. <laughs> just because I disagree with Jim. It was so bad, but I, it was good. It was good. Yes, it, it was yes. good. It was so bad because you knew half of it was just ridiculous and none of that happened. And it was just, this is great. Like, I want to go and throw tomatoes at the screen. Yes, like true exactly. rock tomatoes, like back in the day, Shakespearean times. Boo! I want to boo and hit yes, the screen. Yes, I definitely wanted to boo at certain points. <laughs> the, the Sammy the Bull point, the every time Junior Gotti was on the scene, he, Junior Gotti, the kid who played him, God bless him, don't know him if he's listening. Hey, man. Never acted a day before in his life, had to. He was, he was awful. He was just same face the entire movie, stone cold face, just delivering his lines like this. It was abysmal. Like, I think if you had done a lot, and I'm not in favor of having your phone on during a movie, but if you had done like a live tweeting scene by scene, it would be incredible. Like, your yeah. timeline would have tripled. People would go, hey, Jake Tubbler is going to watch Gotti hey, in real you, time until yeah. this is thought. Hey, what do you mean? Why are we here? Why is he dying now? The movie just started. Well, that's where we started. We started with him having cancer and about to die. That's where the movie starts. And now all of a sudden we're 30 years ago. 
and his kids are babies in jail. Have you ever walked out of a theater? And did you have that impulse at any point when watching Gotti? Never walked out of a theater. Really considered it, but then I thought I can't let Adnan down. <laughs> I was I was this close to walking out. It was maybe forty five minutes in, and I the scene jumping really was just annoying, and I couldn't get past that. Mark Kriegel is a great writer. He's a boxing guy for ESPN. So I just met him now that I'm working on boxing. So I read his column about Crawford and Horn. It was like one of the best articles I've ever written in my life. So I immediately started reading his books. So I just finished Pistol, his book about Pete Maravich, incredible biography. Next up, I'm going to read Namath. Kriegel sent me a message the other day. He goes, you have to do a special expose on Gotti and the demise of the once proud gangster genre. And I said, I'm going to see Kriegel this weekend in Fresno. I said, I just have one question. Was it so bad it's good? He said, no, it's abhorrent. There's no other word to describe it. It's it's just doesn't make any sense. The movie just didn't flow. It didn't have anything. You, it was just they took scenes together, mixed them up, threw them in there in a pot, and said, "Hey, let's make this movie." Good news is Ant Man Two is coming soon, and that's yes, much better. Exciting. Sure. Comic book movies are <laughs> the gangster movie genre has has gone to the wayside very very quickly. I can't think of a good recent gangster movie. Well, last thought here because I know you love The Sopranos like I do. Does Tony die at the end of it? So that's just his life. The paranoia. Every time a bell opens, he's with his that's, family. That's, that's the mafia life. life. That's the mafia that's life. That's the mafia life. Jake Del Moro, many thanks, my friend. My pleasure. Kidney stones or Gotti. Which one was worse? In the moment, Gotti. <laughs> Overall, kidney stones. But I I wouldn't want to wish my worst enemy on either. But if I had to choose, I'd probably choose kidney stones because you don't lose $6 on kidney stones. For Dance Dance, a quick pass for and a triumphant performance by Jake Del Moro. I'm Adnan Burke. We'll see you next time at the movies. Don't miss out on the next episode of Cinephile. Subscribe to the Adnan Verk Movie Podcast by clicking the Listen tab in the ESPN app. Hey, Drew Scott here, and I'm Jonathan Scott, reminding you that life's better with a home policy from American Family Insurance. They can help you get just the right protection at just the right price and help you save when you bundle home and auto. Kind of like Goldilocks and the Three Bears. It'll be just right for you. We love a custom build. American Family Insurance. Insure carefully. Dream fearlessly. Get a quote and find an agent at AmFam.com. Products not available in every state. Visit AmFam.com to learn how discounts may apply to you. American Family Mutual Insurance Company, S.I. and its operating company, 6000 American Parkway, Madison, Wisconsin. Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill.